I want to ask you a few questions. I'm going to have to be moving my glasses on and off today. I, was, I am sweating profusely, and I refuse to take the jacket off. <laughs> Call me stubborn, but that's just the way it is. So anyway, the questions, they're simple and they're straightforward, and I think that you, I think you'll be able to answer these things quite easily and quite assuredly. Do you believe that God loves righteousness? Okay, yeah. Do you believe that God loves it when people exercise faith in him? Good, two for two. I'm hearing yeses. That's, that's good. Do you believe that God loves truth? Do you believe that God loves goodness? Do you believe that God will reward those who obey him and are his? In the back, you're kind of weak. <laughs> I'm assuming that you said yes to most of those questions, to all of those questions, I'm hoping. I would hope they're, they're yes, because they're found in the truths of God, God's Word, right? We, we find those truths in these scriptures. And if you're wondering why I'm open to the wrong side of the Bible, there's no wrong or right side, but there's a place in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, where God gives his self-description. Now, I want you to follow my logic. I know, okay, I know you're worried about that right now. How am I going to follow his logic? But you know, it's hard to follow for many. I'm talking about the logic of if God is, we see God as a God of love, patience, and kindness. He said that himself. Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. And we can all say amen, right? Amen for that. Yes, that's our God. I am grateful for that. But there's also another facet, maybe another side facet we would see of, of diamonds. You're looking at it and you're, you're changing the shape and you look at it this way. You see a different light, but there is another side. Yes, he is gracious. He is merciful. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's forgiving those who sin. But in the same sentence, he continues, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, remember those questions that I asked you in the beginning earlier about God's love and his rewards? I need you to understand that because God loves righteousness and faith, he must hate sin and unbelief. There's no in-between. There's no gray area. He loves righteousness and faith, but he hates sin and unbelief because God loves truth. He must hate lies. 
He cannot love goodness unless he hates wickedness. He cannot reward those who who he chooses to reward because of their obedience unless he punishes those who do not obey him. I understand that these truths about judgment are weighty. In fact, I've heard rumors, can you just get past this? These are not things that we want to bring people in so they can come to know Jesus. I beg to differ. I beg to differ. Jesus came to save. So we don't have to see these judgments come upon us or those who we love if they follow him. These truths about judgment, they're not lacking. They're not lacking in the Old Testament for sure. And some, I would say very, very prominent preachers of the word want to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. They would just soon take that thing, decouple it, and leave the Old Testament in the background because that is not what they want to talk about. But what? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he was in the beginning, in Genesis, he is the same in the book of Revelation. In the New Testament, I was just pleased to be in a, in a Sunday school class this morning where Ray Kwan was teaching, and he was teaching the, tru- the truths of, of Matthew And he spoke of John the Baptist and how he warned leaders of his generation to flee from the wrath to come. Wrath, the anger of God. The axe is ready to cut down the tree. John warned, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Now we understand that he is talking about Jesus here. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat and into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We're all comforted. When Jesus is quoted in his conversation with Nicodemus, and we go to this because it's probably the first verse that we teach a child probably from five years old and up. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And we say, amen, amen, amen. So be it, so be it, so be it. True, true, true. Glorious truths. But if this is true, what Jesus says at the end of chapter 3 is true as well. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What about this wrath of God? That's what Jesus took in the three hours of darkness on the cross when it went black. Jesus absorbed every bit of God's wrath that is aimed at sinners who would believe. Enough for those who would believe. And those who reject, the wrath of God is still upon them. Last week, Pastor John preached an outstanding message from Revelation chapter 15 called this, Responding to the Wrath of God. If you weren't able to listen to it, get the church app. You can punch the button. It'll bring you right there. You can listen to it on your phone or go to rosedalebiblechurch.com and you can listen to it. The message last week laid the groundwork for this morning. It laid the groundwork for Revelation chapter 15 where we come to the weighty passage that introduces the seven bowls of God's wrath. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 16? If you don't have a Bible and you would like to use one, feel free to grab one that's in front of you. It's a blue one on the, in the pew in front of you. The passage can be found on 1, 000, page 1037. And we'll begin here. The tension has been building since chapter 6 when the Lamb of God began to open the seals. And the seals, the scroll that he grabbed from the hand of God, that he took from the hand of God, signified the deed, uh, deed of the earth, his right to what is his and how it was going to be redeemed, so to speak. And each one of the seals that were broken built upon each other. And then when the seventh seal was opened, the seven trumpet judgments began. The seven trumpet judgments are part of the seventh seal. And as each trumpet sounded, more and more judgments came. And today we come to the seven bowl judgments. If you're a mechanic, you might think of putting something in a vice. And each one of the judgments have been, it's like cranking the vice one little bit crank around at a time. For those of you who might be a, a cook, you take a, a pot of water and, and it starts out, you take it out of your tap and you put it on the, on the stove and you turn the stove up and it begins to heat and then it begins to steam and then the flame gets bigger and eventually it becomes to a full boil and it boils over. That's what we're looking at today. It's the great and terrible day of the Lord will come. Verse 1 of chapter 16 tells us, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, 
Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, whose voice is this? We've heard angels speak. We've, we've even heard the Lamb of God speak. This can only be the voice of God because of what the last verse of what John spoke of. Because the glory of the Lord, the smoke, was in the temple, and no one could be in there except God himself. So this voice comes from God, and his power, and no one can enter this until the seven plagues, also known as the seven bowls. Think with me here. The seven plagues are called seven blows. You could also translate it that way. They're blows. And what John saw were, when we think of bowls, we think of something that's deeper, but he saw what was used in the temple. It was like a, a saucer. It was a deep saucer that was, it held the incense that was given up to God, that rose up to God for a pleasing aroma. But instead of smelling sweet to the nose of mankind, this will contain something very foul. Go and pour. And it begins. Each angel, each of the seven angels, having a specific target that they target. And this, this, their guidance system, it's more accurate than any laser weapon that man has ever envisioned or, or made. It is direct. It hits right where it's supposed to. I know this is not fun to listen to. This is not fun to deliver. I can see, your, I can see you squirming. Maybe that's what we need. That's the, this is uncomfortable, but it's truth. The first four plagues in the original language, again, blows, affect individuals through personal affliction or through the objects of nature. The last three are on more of an international, a global scale, an international scale, leading the way to the final confrontation. Well, the first bowl, harmful and painful sores. Like the sixth plague brought against Egypt, this judgment comes upon a very specific group. It's not willy-nilly. There are still believers on the earth. There are still those who are hiding out into the wilderness where God is hiding them. And there are still people who are trying to avoid the beast and his government. It's a very specific group. And it's if God is declaring this, if you take the mark of beast on, uh, the beast on your body, I'll give you a mark. I'll give you sores. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The sores being described here are like an angry boil that even after they're lanced, they won't be healed. 
We'll see that in verse 11. We understand that later in the trumpet, they are still being afflicted with these terrible things. It's a reminder. You have chosen to worship the beast. The time is done. It's too late. What is a boil? A boil is an outward sign of an inward problem. That's true spiritually as well. What Satan used against one of God's own, Job, God now gives Satan's servants. They're now receiving what was promised in Revelation 14. When John said, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These are worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. We've said over and over that God answers his promises. And he answers it here. The second bowl, the death to all sea life. When the second trumpet blew in chapter 8, we saw a third of the seas turned to blood, and the third of the, the animals, the marine animals in the sea, they died. Now the entirety of the world's oceans are smitten. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood of a, the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. Let that sink in. And I'm not saying this as a joke. Let that stink in. Every living creature died. The unbelievable effect on this will be enormous. Whatever food came from the oceans, it's gone. Whatever shipping, it's done. Remember in last March when just one canal, the Suez Canal, was blocked for five or six days? Prices went up because what? One little canal. It was not so little, but one canal was blocked. What will this be? Ships' engines that are normally cooled by seawater do not cool well with coagulated blood or the semblance of running into them. They don't work. So everything is done. One writer has penned, the transforming of the world's seas into putrid pools of stinking death will be a graphic testimony of the wickedness of man. The third bowl, bloody inland waters. And we need to understand this. This is, this is a rule of life. Whoever controls fresh water controls the population. 
It's simple. If you don't have water to drink, you do not live. You cannot live. You will get sick. You will die. It takes four days, three to four days, for a person without water who does not have anything to, to drink to pass away. Now think back with me. Those of you who have been with us for the Revelation, in chapter 11, we had the two witnesses. They were able to do different things. One of them was real cool. They were able to have fire come out of their mouth. Now, who would not like fire to be able to come out of their mouth? Literally, figuratively, I don't know, but, and consume their enemies. Now, you got to know, any teenage guy would love to have fire. Who am I kidding? Any 70, 80-year-old guy would love to have fire to be able to control that. But they were also able to do one thing. They were able, they prayed to the Lord, and it did not rain for three and a half years. You think we have a drought now. Three and a half years. Now, when the witnesses were taken off of this earth, I can only assume that maybe the rain again might have begun. But also think with me, in chapter 7, there are angels holding back the breeze. There's no breeze going on now either. Our world, our environment is whacked. There must be a shortage of water now, and, and the third bowl is poured out. Look at, at verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the, into the rivers and the springs of water, and it became blood. No water to drink. No water to wash your sores, these boils that are on you. You can't wash. You can't bathe. What misery this is. Why, God? Why this harsh punishment? You're asking, I know you're thinking this. Why? Why this? Because the punishment fits the crime. The punishment fits the crime. Heaven shouts that God is justified. Continuing at verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. It's what they deserve. I know this is hard. I know I said that earlier. I know this is hard. Just as Abraham said to the Lord when he was negotiating for his nephew's life at the Oaks of Mamre when the Lord was about to send his two angels to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham said this, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death and the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the answer that is not given, but we know, yes, he will. Yes, he will do what is right. God's punishment fits the crime. This was not cruel and unusual punishment. The beast and those following him 
had killed an unnumberable amount of believers. They killed God's people. Those who had chosen to obey God and to give him glory were hunted down and killed. Anyone who refused to worship the beast, your time was up. And when the angel declares it is what they deserve, it could easily be translated this way. They are worthy. And in fact, that's what the original language does say. They are worthy. How we say, Lord, you are worthy of all honor, glory. These are worthy of what they're receiving. Just as Pharaoh had tried to drown the Jewish boys, Moses, Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea. Just as Haman had wanted to impale Mordecai on a pole, I know it says gallows, but it is a pole. It was Haman and his sons who were impaled. The punishment fits the crime. Verse 7, I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The altar, who was under the altar? The saints who had been killed. The fourth bowl is poured out on the sun, and there is now true global warming. The fourth trumpet also had concentrated on the sun, and instead of intense sun, the fourth, the fourth trumpet, it was shade. A third of the sun was darkened, and a third of, the, of all the heavenly bodies didn't put out their light. But this time, instead of shade, there's intense heat. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by fierce heat. And we know that it's God that controls the weather. That's why we pray. But understand this. These people know it's God who controls the weather as well. They, they aren't without knowledge. But their reaction, instead of Yes, God, you are worthy of honor and praise. Yes, God, we will obey. They shake their fists, and they do what humans often do. They re respond with slanderous defiance. They blame someone else instead of themselves. Instead of taking ownership themselves, yes, Lord, we are worthy of this. Yes, Lord, we have done this. We beg for your mercy. We beg for your forgiveness. No, they blame the Lord who made the sun, the sea, and the waters. They blame the Lord who made everything in the beginning, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The prophet Malachi wrote in his day, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. 
The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The effects, we can only imagine what they'll be. The polar ice caps will be minimized. The glaciers melt. Rivers overflow for a time because of the glaciers melting. Shorelines are expanded with the stinking smell, with the death and decay. William Newell wrote, if men are not won by grace, they will never be won. God's judgments usually don't change men's hearts, nor do they seem designed to. God judges sinner not to re- sinners not to reveal his grace, but to reveal his holiness. Close quote. The fifth bowl is now poured out, and the one who is, was given authority to rule by the dragon, who we know the dragon is Satan, the one who was given authority is the beast, he's now shaken to the core. The beast's kingdom is darkened. He's left powerless to defend himself. He has no, nothing left. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People nod their tongues in anguish. The people, the world is on the brink of destruction. The prophet Joel wrote of this time, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains. There's no hope. There's only agony, grief, and sorrow. And verse 11 tells us anger and cursed. And they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and the sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Fanning writes, like their object of worship, they mimic his implacable rejection of God. Thomas adds this, their hurt, instead of changing their hearts, hardens them. They cling to their idolatry and their immorality. The sixth bowl, and like the rest, doesn't cause pain or discomfort or distress upon mankind. Instead, it makes preparation for the upcoming battle. The Euphrates is made dry. The Euphrates River is a river that runs 1,400 miles from the mountains of Ararat, where we know that Noah's ark was on, and it goes 1,400 miles where it empties into the Persian Gulf. It is the major tributary of the, the Fertile Crescent and it was a natural boundary. During the time that John wrote Revelation, the Roman Empire was fearful of the, the countries that lied beyond in the east, in the east. They were called the Parthians. And they were scared 
to death because they always made raids coming in and they continued to grow farther and farther in and the Roman Empire, once it declined, they were struck by these folks among the Germanic people as well. The nation of Israel knew the east side of the, the Euphrates well too because that's where Babylon was. And Babylon is always considered evil. And Babylon was where the Israelites were taken into exile. This is a picture of the armies coming to either attack Israel because of rabid anti-Semitism or nations who are seeking to free themselves from the beast. And I think both. All the nations of the world, they're gathering. They, they hate God. They hate who he represents and who represents him, the people of Israel. And now they hate the beast because look what, look what you've done. Look at verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its river was dry, and its water was dried up to prepare a way for the kings from the east. With the lack of rain and the glaciers that are in Ararat now melted, there had to have been floods with the sudden water dispersal because of the glaciers melting. I don't know if they knocked out all of the bridges that could actually supply or logistically supply the nations that are coming to attack. But we know that no barriers there anymore. And they're coming. They're coming hard. The armies of the world are coming hard. Verse 13, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. Now remember, these are not real frogs. This, this is a picture. This is a picture that John has seen when they're coming out of the, I would call them the satanic trio. Why frogs? If I was talking about this now, my, my daughter is in Kansas right now. She would be so squeamish right now because of frogs. She can't stand frogs. She's nuts. It's fun to hold a frog by her. I'm sorry, I'm trying to lighten this up for myself. First, frogs are unclean. They're not kosher. They're unclean to the Jewish nation. Second, a commentator has written, they're cold-blooded amphibians who live in two worlds. Many have poison in their skin. Many can change color at will and can leap a remarkable distance. These demons who are unclean are seen as cold-blooded fiends, creatures of two worlds, full of venom and poison for mankind, and are swift-paced to lead men to their blood-bathed end. Coming out of the mouth of the satanic trio, the satanic trinity, this is a picture of the words. Words mean things. Words, words, words. And they're demon-inspired. 
and they're deceiving the whole world. Verse 14 tells us this, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the God Almighty. They're leading mankind to their doom. The kings think they're, they're making their own decisions. We always do, don't we? I'm going to do this. I can do this. Who's actually eating you? But understand this. Just as God used these ages of evil to accomplish His will, His purposes, just as an evil lying spirit, Kendall, you know this, enticed King Ahab into battle where he lost his life, the same way these evil agents will be used to draw all the armies of the world into a killing zone. I have in my notes, check the time. And sorry for you, I have a half hour longer. Psalm 2, called a messianic psalm. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them with his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is God the Father saying, Jesus is my king. He's set here. No one's doing anything to him. You rage, I laugh. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, Blessed are those who take refuge in him. That's our Jesus. On one hand, we have a compassionate God who became man and came to earth to save sinners. And the only folks that he really derided and degraded were the religious leaders who thought that they were good enough and put burdens on people. But to the common man, to the common sinner, go and sin no more. Come to me. That's him now. 
but what I just read will be him then. It's not dreamy Jesus. It's the son who is angry. And in the middle of it all, John hears a voice. It's the voice of the Lamb. The voice of the Lamb comes through. And his words are for Christians who are alive during this time, this time of the future, where they're hiding. I don't know where they're hiding because they're trying to save, they're trying to save their lives. But yet, these words are also to the seven churches that John wrote to. He's saying, listen to this. And these words are also for us. Verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Does a thief ever tell you when he's coming? No, they don't. They just show up unannounced. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Any of you have ever lived in places where tornadoes come? I don't see any hands raised, so I could, oh, there we go. Leslie, Leslie knows this. When storm season comes, you normally pay attention, do you not? You listen to the radio, you listen to alerts, text alerts, or whatever, and you need to know what the weather is going to hold for the next, for the days ahead. You look ahead and learn to expect the unexpected. It can come unannounced. Oh, well, there it is. There's the thunder. Oh, it's coming. And here Jesus issues a call to, of a similar kind of alertness and promises to bring blessings. This is a beatitude, one of the seven in Revelation. And here John pauses to record Jesus' pronouncement of blessing on the one who stays morally aware and well-dressed. Again, morally aware and well-dressed. Notice it's not a call to watch for visible signs of God's return. It's a call to maintain a good conduct that is faithful because God has promised that justice will prevail in the end. Now, church, I'm going to ask you another really easy question. Where did the people that, John, that the Lord now is speaking to, where did they receive their clothes? Where do you receive your clothes? And it's not Amazon and it's not Kohl's. I'm talking about you receive your clothes from the Lord Jesus Christ when you have placed your faith in him. And what do those clothes represent? They represent his righteousness, his holiness that he has given to you where God sees a person who was once dead in sin, whose goodness was like filthy rags, and he now sees his son, his son's righteousness. And we're clothed with that. 
And Jesus is encouraging his people not to be overwhelmed or paralyzed by what the future holds. That is us. Our future might, may not hold these things, these terrible things, but yeah, we're worried about what happens in the future, but don't be paralyzed. The Lord has this. The Lord has you. No bleak, no matter how bleak it looks, for these folks when the judgment comes. But on the other hand, church, we cannot be oblivious either to the times. We cannot put our head in the sand and say, well, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. No. We can't be distracted with things that take us away from the commitment to Christ. But hear me. We must be aware and be occupied with God's work in this world in the time He gives us today. God is faithful. And they assembled them, speaking of the world's armies, at the place in Hebrew called Armageddon. Har Megiddo, Har meaning mountain or hill, and Megiddo being the city that's there. It's the place also called the Valley of Jezreel. It's here where Barak, with the Lord's help, defeated the armies of Canaan. It's where Gideon and his 300 defeated a whole army of Midianites with just torches that were covered, and they broke the torches. And it's also in the area where King Saul lost his life. A man you may have heard of named Napoleon Bonaparte called this place, and I quote, the most natural battlefield of the whole earth. The question was asked regarding the beast in chapter 13. Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? One word. Three letters. First letter starts with G, and that's a capital G. Last, word, last letter starts with D. And the middle one is a vowel. You want to buy a vowel? God! God can fight against the beast, and God will fight against the beast. Which brings us to the last, the seventh bowl, the destruction of Babylon. This bowl comes upon the entire earth, and the effects of it are simply devastating. This is the final outpouring on sinners in this present earth. And please pay attention to my words, in this present earth, because we're soon going to see that this earth is not going to be the same. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne. Now, who is this person talking, or who is this being talking from the temple? Because not all these seven things are done yet. It is God. A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. That's my biggest 
biggest voice I can use without going over and Joel will get mad at me because our live stream will be messed up. It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And in a place known for earthquakes where John was writing from, the, from this is saying something. As we'll read, it is a huge earthquake. The results, verse 28, and I ask, keep this, keep this verse up for me. Excuse me. This chat, verse 19, I was slide number 28. The great city, we know this is Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem because we understand this from chapter 11, verse 8. The great Jerusalem was split into three parts. Holy smokes, what an earthquake. Split into three. Now you'd think, this must be judgment on Jerusalem, right? This must be a terrible thing that's going to happen to Jerusalem, right? No. No. God is actually enhancing his jewel. He's lifting it up. He's breaking this into three parts. One with, listen as I read Zechariah 14. I'm sorry, I'm just getting excited. This is, this is good stuff. Zechariah 14, beginning at verse 4. On that day, his feet shall stand on the, Mount, on the Mount of Olives. Whose feet? The one who left that Mount of Olives the one time before. He's coming back. He's going to stand on the Mount of Olives and it shall be split in two, east to west, by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount will be moved northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Ezal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. Will you be there? Will you be with him? I surely hope you will be. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but in evening time there shall be light. Wow, it's like there's no sun. This is the Lamb is the light. Imagine that. Well, anyway, on that day, living waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the sea to the east. What is that sea now? That's the Dead Sea. Nothing grows there. But a river is going to flow from Jerusalem to that sea, and it's going to teem with fish, and it's going to blossom like the rose. The desert will bloom like a rose. The other half will go to the sea to the west. That's the Mediterranean. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hanel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Why? Because the king's on the throne. And I mean the real king on the throne. But yet there's work to be done. 
Back to Revelation, verse 19. While Jerusalem's being lifted up, split into three pieces, and the cities of the nation fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Babylon's fall will be described in chapters 17 and 18. Continuing at verse 20. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. Landscapes changed. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. The natural heart of man again is revealed, and instead of turning to God, the response is to curse. RBC, in a world where the earth is worshiped instead of its creator, where there is a concern by many that the earth is in danger because of overpopulation, it's my prayer that we be concerned with the overpopulation of hell. Pray for the lost. Pray for your family. Pray for those who live next to you. Tell them the truth that the time to turn to God is now. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Beg, cry. The time is short. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Tell others that truth.